You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to Lesson 5, where we will be continuing looking at the controversies and creeds concerning the person of Christ. Particularly in this lesson, we're going to move from Arius and Arianism and Nicaea all the way up to Ephesus. Beginning with Arianism, Arianism was probably one of the most successful heresies within the early church. It taught that the Word who became incarnate was a semi-divine super-creature. For Arianism, the Father creates as the first creature, a super-creature, a spiritual creature, who is the Son. This spiritual creature is identified as the Word, the Logos. And through Him, God creates all other creatures. So all creatures are created through the Word. We can see how this is similar to Orthodox Christianity. Everything is created through the Word. And that this Son, who is not an eternal Son, because He's not divine, but He's semi-divine, this one becomes incarnate. But He only becomes incarnate in a halfway because there is a human body but no soul. This is the first, by the way, of what tends to be called the Logos Sarx Anthropologies or the Logos, Sarks, visions of Christ. The Word is combined only with the flesh. The Word, flesh, no human soul. What does that mean then for Arianism? Well, the Word is the first of all created realities. Everything is created through Him. This Word became enfleshed in a man. He took to Himself only human body, no rational soul. We will see that later heresies are going to stick very closely to this. We will continue to have heresies that will deny human soul or at least the full workings of a human soul, a human will, etc., to Christ. One of the reasons why Arius was attracted to this view is that he held so strongly in a way to the utter impassibility of God, to the utter transcendence of God, that he thought that God was so separate from creation that God could never become joined to the creation. So he had a notion also from Neoplatonic philosophy where there was God, then the noose, and then everything created. Noose for the mind. So you have God, an eternal mind, which is separate from God, then everything that's created. So he took that and kind of fit that into Christianity. So what happened is that the eternal God can't become incarnate, but a semi-God can. One of the problems, of course, is that it's not clear what Jesus is then, because he's not the creator, but he's not a creature either. He's kind of in between. There are passages, though, from the New Testament which suggest something like this to Jesus. As we read in Colossians 1.15, he is the firstborn of all creation. If we interpret firstborn as literally the first thing created, of course, that could give rise to this. John 14.28 the Father is greater than I. And many passages in the New Testament that refer to, it is the Father who sent me. 
the sense that the word is lesser than the father. As I said, Arianism was perhaps one of the most successful heresies in the early church. St. Jerome quipped that he woke up to discover that the whole world was Arian. Arianism held that the son was homo eusius of a similar nature to the father, but not homo with the father. Homo eusius is Greek for similar to the father. Homo eusius is Greek for of the same nature as the father. Literally, the only difference between those two words is an iota. Whence comes the expression, it doesn't make an iota's worth of difference. Here, an iota makes all the difference. Either the son is like the father, of a similar nature to the father, or the son is of the same nature as the father. The son is either God, true God, or he is not. And Arian, Arius, and Arianism after him, had a slogan for this that they would literally say about the son, there was when he was not. This would be a slogan they would almost chant, there was when he was not. It means that the son was not the creator, but he was a creature. Because there was when he was not. There was a time when the son did not exist. Because the son is a creature, even though he's a great creature, he's only a creature. So the Catholic response to Arianism was very strong and also very central for the church's understanding of Jesus Christ. Particularly in Athanasius, St. Athanasius, sometimes known as Athanasius Contramundum, against the world. Athanasius stood with the Orthodox bishops against, of course, there were more Arians in the world than there were Orthodox Christians. It's a good thing that the church isn't a democracy or else it would have voted Arian. But Athanasius and others stood against this. And particularly the church in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea taught that the son was homo usius, of the same nature. The Latin derivative is consubstantial with the father. In the creed, as it's professed at Mass on Sundays by Catholic Christians, is one in being with the father. Jesus is begotten, not made. He's begotten from the Father, but he's not made. He's not a creature. He is one in being with the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. The Son is truly divine just as the Father is divine. Nicaea also condemns anyone who says there was a time when he was not, or he was not before he was begotten, or that he was made out of nothing. The church firmly says that there is a great divide between the perfection of the creator, which has always existed, and creatures which have been brought into existence by the will of the creator. And it says firmly that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is on the side of the creator. The Nicene Creed from 325 at the Council of Constantinople in 381, we get a little section added to it which basically says the same thing about the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is truly God, truly divine, just as the Son and the Father are. So we say that the Holy Spirit is worshiped with the Father and the Son. And it's that modified creed, what's known as the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, which came from 381, which is basically the creed that is professed by the Catholic Church and many, many Christian faiths at Mass. Why did the church find it necessary to condemn Arius' views so strongly? 
Well, Athanasius, in his great work on the incarnation of the Word, argued two things. He took two images. First, this idea that everything was created out of nothing. And then secondly, that man was made in the image of God. And from these two ideas, he said it's necessary that the one who is going to save us must be truly God. Because what he said is that since man was created in the image of God, but also since man was created out of nothing, that once man sins, he no longer looks at God. And once he no longer is turning to God, in whose image he is made, he literally, man falls back into nothingness. And if man falls back into nothingness, man is almost in a sense on the verge of disappearing from creation until God restores him. So man has to be restored to this perfection. He has to be restored in the image. Well, since he was made in the image, Christ comes as the true image of God. And as the true image of God, he alone is able to restore man in the image of God. Remember that Colossians 1.15 said that he is the image of the invisible God. Literally, they're the icon in the Greek, the image or the icon of the invisible God. So since Jesus is the true image of God, he can restore us to the image of God. Also, since the problem with man is that man was made from nothing, and therefore, insofar as man had strayed from God, man was returning into nothingness, to kind of an ontological nothingness. Because of that, not literally going into nothing, but in terms of compared to the reality and the glory and the splendor to which man was called, that's the true reality of man. Man was falling into sin, to a lesser reality, to this weakened state of dissipation and death. Not literally turning into nothingness, but compared to the greatness which he was originally created for. Well, again, only the creator could fix man who was a creature. Only the creator who had created everything from nothing, who could fix man who was created from nothing. If the word were merely a creature, as Arius uh, affirmed, then how could a creature who was made from nothing fix man's problem? Because man's problem is that man was created from nothing and is falling back into nothingness. So the only way that Christ can save us, the only way that the word can save us, if the word is truly the creator, because only the creator and the true image of God can restore man who was created from nothing and created in the image of God. So here we really have in a way what can be called the first axiom of orthodoxy. There are two axioms that we're going to talk about that we summarize kind of the orthodox response to thinking about Christ. And this is the first one, and Athanasius says it here, only God can save. Only God can save. Only the creator of the universe, only the creator of man can save man. If you're a semi-creature, can't do it. Anything else, you know, will not suffice because man's problem is that he has fallen into wrong relationship with his creator. His very creation is being weakened. He needs the true creator to save him, to restore him. Athanasius, by the way, used a simple example about how Christ could have two natures, divine and human, and yet have those two natures separate from each other. He used the example of an iron bar that's placed in fire. If you imagine an iron bar that's placed in fire, the iron bar retains its solidity. It retains what's proper to it as iron, but it also now is hot, which is proper to it as fire. 
So he uses this iron bar placed in fire as though you have two natures in the one Christ. Christ is still human, but he's also divine. Just as the iron bar in the fire is iron and it's also fire. It acts like both. So this is how Athanasius responds to and the church responds to Arianism. And it returns to this image that the eternal son has become a true human, true human body and soul against Arianism, which had a modified view. Jesus was, in a sense, neither fully human nor fully divine. The next section that I'm going to look at is ones that continue, in a way, based on Arius in one way or another, extend Arianism's tendencies, that they basically look at Jesus as not really the God-man. They don't totally deny that he's human, they don't totally deny that he's divine, but they somehow deny the way that the divine and the human are united. Each of them, in one way or another, deny that Christ is one person in two natures. The first main heresy along this lines is Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism was a reaction against Arianism, but it in some ways took much from it. Apollinarianism took the view that the Son who became incarnate in Jesus Christ was the true Son, was the eternal Son. But that eternal Son became a man, but when it became a man, it didn't become a normal man, it became a distinct man. What you have is a human body, but no soul. What happened, according to Apollinarianism? Well, what happened is that you have basically the man, Jesus, but you have a body inhabited by the very Word. So you have almost as though literally the Word replaces the human mind of the man, Jesus. It comes in here, but it's not a human mind. It would be as if you were talking to Jesus. There was no human mind going on there. It's simply the word. I tell my students, this is kind of like Mr. Ed. It looks like a horse, but it's really got a human rational soul in there. So it's kind of the Mr. Ed phenomenon. It looks just like a human being, but if you're talking to him, you're not really talking to a human being. You're talking to the eternal word of God. Apollinarianism would support this, by referring to John 1.14, which we've already looked at, the Word became flesh. And Apollinarianism would interpret that literally by meaning the Word became flesh. That means it only became flesh. It didn't become a body and a soul, but only a body. And so we have here again this idea that this is very similar to Arianism, but it's kind of Arianism that admits the full divinity of the Word but again, it doesn't admit the full humanity of Christ. Why do people go in this direction? Well, as we've seen many times, Apollinarianism is hesitant to admit a full human personality to Jesus Christ. There's not a full human personality. There's not passions. There's not a will. There's only simply the word. In a way, Jesus is psychologically simple. There's not a question of how did Jesus, his human nature, know things, or did his human nature learn things. It's simply the word replaces all of the properties of reason and rationality and the will that are normal to a human nature. But the unity of Christ here is defended at the price of the integrity of the human nature. This heretical tendency to deny the full human activity to Christ will reappear in monophysitism, monergonism, and monothelitism, which we are going to look at in the next lesson. So how did the church respond to this? 
Well, the church responded by saying that, as we've said before, that the eternal son is pure spirit and therefore can't inhabit a human body. Because it's pure spirit, it can't be the form of matter in the way that the soul is the form of the body. Instead, the son, who is eternal, can only be joined to a full human body, a full human body with a full human soul. Another way of putting it is that the word can't, in a way, join immediately to the body. We need to have the word over here. The church's response saw this. This actually begins with origin, and then is continued in a couple different people. But that the word is joined by the rational soul to the human body. And that the rational soul, our human soul, is unique because the rational soul is able to be united to God because it can know and love him because it's made in God's image. And it's also able to be united to the human body because the soul is the form of the body. The soul and the body come together in the one human person. So therefore, the rational soul is uniquely able in Christ to be united to the word and united to the human body. So the church said that the human being in Jesus Christ has a full human nature, both with a rational soul and a body. St. Gregory of Nazianzus also attacked this heresy, and what he said is that, according to Apollinaris, who's the founder of Apollinarianism, what happened is that, in a way, have that God is inhabiting like a subhuman animal. There's no rational soul there, so you have basically God indwelling a subhuman animal. Well, this, of course, is not going to help human beings because then God didn't become a human being. And he says what becomes the second axiom of orthodoxy. What has not been assumed has not been healed. And let me say that again. What has not been assumed, that is, what has not been assumed by the word in the incarnation has not been healed, has not been saved. So if our full humanity, both our reason and our will and our body has not been assumed by the word, then we would not be healed. So therefore, if the word only became a human body, then our rational souls would not be healed, so we wouldn't be saved. So Apollinarianism really attacks the whole salvific character of the incarnation. Gregory and other Orthodox theologians also was specifically looked at John 1.14, which said the word became flesh. And they said that that flesh there means the whole human being, body and soul. To show that, they argued along this grounds. They also pointed to places like Psalm 65, verse 2, which reads that to thee, God, namely, to God shall all flesh come on account of sins. So there in the scriptures, we already have the practice of referring to human beings in general as just all flesh. And obviously there, they're not saying only bodies and no souls. Flesh stands in for the whole human person. The next heresy, as it comes in, is Nestorianism. And in a way, you can see that Nestorianism is a reaction in a way against Apollinarianism. Nestorianism, if Apollinarianism denies a full human nature to Jesus Christ, Nestorianism goes so far in asserting the full integrity of the human nature of Jesus Christ that it risks the true unity of the person of Jesus Christ. For Nestorianism, we have the eternal Son who is joined to the human nature, to the human person, simply by what is known as a bond of affection. The bond of affection here is 
in a way, a moral unity, a moral union, a union of love. Nestorius said that Jesus, his human nature is a true human person. You have a true human person and you have the person of the son. So Nestorius actually says that there are two persons. There are two, in the Greek, hypostases. Two persons, but he says that the two persons appear as one, one prosopon in the Greek. They appear as one person, but they're really two persons. That's kind of Nestorius' way of doing it. He says that Christ is a real human person, body and soul, but that real human person is indwelt by God, by the Word, as in a temple. And so therefore, we have the two persons that are distinct, but the two persons are joined in their love for one another. So because of this, Nestorius is in a way famous for denying Mary as mother of God. Theoticus, literally the God-bearer. He said that Mary was not the mother of God because Mary was only the mother of the human person of Jesus. Mary was, as he would put it, he said you can't call Mary Theoticus, but you can call Mary Christotokos. Mary gave birth to the human person of Christ, but not to the divine person. And also this could follow the divine person didn't suffer on the cross, but the human Christ suffered on the cross. We can divide up the actions of Christ. Only the human Christ was born. Only the human Christ suffered. Only the human Christ died. The divine word was united all the time, but the divine word didn't do these actions. Now, of course, the church will respond strongly to this in the Council of Ephesus in 431, and specifically, St. Cyril of Alexandria, who's really the father of that council, he wrote against Nestorius that the same person is both God and man. So we have one person that is both God and man. The Council of Ephesus in 431 also reaffirmed Mary as Theoticus. It was proper to call Mary the mother of God, or literally God-bearer, the mother of God because as they put it, you give birth to a person, not to a nature. A mother does not give birth to human nature. A mother gives birth to a person. And there is only one person in Christ. There is that one person who now has two natures. This is important for several levels because the church knew that if we separated the actions of Christ, as Nestorius did, then not only would we deny that Mary is the mother of God, but we would also deny then that Christ, or that the eternal word died on the cross. And again, we have that problem. If only the human nature died on the cross, then have we really been saved? And the church said, no, the word of God can be said to have died on the cross because there is only one person in Christ. There is only one subject to whom we can attribute actions. We attribute actions, both actions proper to his human nature and to his divine nature, to the one person of Jesus Christ the one person of the word. By the way, it's important also to note that by this time in 431, the church had already been calling Mary mother of God, invoking her as mother of God in her liturgies and in her intercessions for a significant period of time here, at least for a hundred years or so. So that devotion to Mary goes back really at the latest, the fourth or earlier, the second or third centuries in the church. One final thing here about the Catholic response, the Orthodox response to 
Nestorius here is that the church affirms what is known as the communicatio idiomatum. Literally, it means the communication of idioms. But as we talk about in Christology, it really means the communication of properties, the communication of actions. And what that means is that the church says that the actions that are proper to the human nature can be attributed to the divine nature because they are in the same person. Likewise, the actions of the divine nature can be attributed to the human nature because they are united in the one person. So therefore, the Council of Nestorius says that anyone is anathema, they are outside the church if they deny one of the Trinity suffered on the cross. So the Word really suffered on the cross in his human nature, and because of that, the church can still proclaim the salvation to man because God has suffered for us, and as the first axiom taught, only God can save. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.